You're listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. But the story of Genesis 10 is the story of the families um, from Noah's three sons spreading out over the earth. Uh, The genealogies that we've looked at in Genesis are a reminder of how God has worked through people to accomplish his plan and his purpose. Um, And today we're going to look at Genesis 9, 18, all the way through chapter 11, verse 9. And uh, we're going to look at how Noah's family, um, which was pretty messed up, uh, so it seems, even though Noah did walk with God and was a righteous man according to Genesis 6, um, righteous people still sin. Um, and we see that in Noah's life and the fallout of that in his family. Um, but it also shows us how from Noah's family, the nations of the earth began to spread throughout the earth. And as I was thinking about this, I, I thought about some of the shows that I watched as a kid. Now, you could probably argue that this wasn't very good parenting on my dad's part, but he was at work. I got home from school before him. And so whatever was on TV at the time, you know, we used to go home um, and, and I don't know if you were like this, but you went home and you turn on the TV and you were forced to watch whatever they were showing you, right? Like you couldn't choose what you wanted to watch, you know, like my kids don't understand when a commercial comes on, my son falls apart, you know, it's like, what happened to my show? You know, you're like, just take 30 seconds, you know, or sometimes five seconds before we can skip the commercial, you know, like we used to have to watch all of these things, but I used to like watching uh, the Mari show. Um, (laughs) Hear me out, all right? I wouldn't show this to my children today, and I'm sure I probably shouldn't have watched most of the episodes. But the Mari show falls in line. Again, I'm not condoning these shows. The Jerry Springer show, Dr. Phil, uh, Montel, Judge Judy. All of these shows came on somewhere between 4 and 6 o'clock, maybe 3 and 6 o'clock or something like that. And I actually enjoyed watching them, and they all have something in common. Uh, They all share this in common. They show that people are absolutely crazy and out of control, right? Like, you can watch it, and you're like, I cannot believe what I am watching right now. Um, But the thing that they often do, I think the reason that I found it fascinating is they often, like, they dug into family issues, Uh, at their best. Some of them got beyond that and did other stuff, but uh, at their best, they often looked at uh, the issues that families walk through, the trauma that families experience, the the heartache and the hurt and the messiness of family. Um, I think probably subconsciously I enjoyed watching them because if you come from a broken family like mine, you're like, it's good to know we're not the only ones that are messed up in the world, you know, like uh, we're not as messed up as they are, you know, that's what you kind of tell yourself as you as you watch it, and it's kind of a weirdly comforting experience. Um, but the, the narrative that appears so frequently in those shows is, is really the reason it resonates with us is because it's common to humanity. Uh, it's, it's common to, uh, to many of our lives, and it's been that way since the beginning. Uh, and as we look at Genesis 9, starting in verse 18, we see that what unfolds is the story of the drama of one family, uh, their messiness and their sin and the dishonor and shame that comes from it, and how through that one family, the nations began to spread out over the whole earth. 
In many ways, these chapters set up the rest of Genesis, but also the rest of the Bible. Uh, they are the backdrop upon which we see that we, we have a God who is a God of the nations and intends to bring salvation to the nations with, with whom there are people in those nations and those nations as a whole have this remaining problem that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, and that's the problem of sin. And so what we see uh, is kind of the stage being set for the remainder of this chapter. And Pastor Chris next week will close out this series looking at the tail end of Genesis 11 and into Genesis 12 when we see how God chooses Abram, uh, who comes from the line of Shem. Um, I don't know if you followed that, Shem and a park shot and a park shot at Shelah and Shelah had, I'm just kidding, I don't know if you followed all that, but we'll get to that in a little bit. We see how through the line of Shem, God is going to, to ultimately choose Abram and call Abram and take Abram and make him into a great nation. And through Abram, who becomes Abraham, who ultimately is the father of the nation of Israel, God is going to bring blessing and salvation to all nations. And so all of the, uh, of the work that we see, all the groundwork being laid here that's going to point us to Abraham next week is ultimately going to, to point us forward to Jesus, who comes uh, as the Savior who brings blessing to all nations. Uh, but <clears throat> back to our Mari episode for today. Um, <clears throat> Genesis 9 uh, is where we're going to begin in verse 18. And Genesis 9, 18, we already saw that Noah and his family got off the ark. And the first thing they do is they worship. Uh, the first thing they do is they respond in thanksgiving to God and make a sacrifice. And, and God establishes his eternal covenant uh, through Noah is representative ultimately of all humanity, Noah and his family, um, his sons and their wives and, and presumably their children. Through them, God establishes this eternal covenant never to judge the earth again by means of a flood. Uh, and, and we see the covenant nature of God, that God is a covenant making and a covenant keeping God. Uh, and then it comes to uh, this scene in, in verse 18. <clears throat> the breakdown of this, if you kind of look at it, the, the unfolding of what happens, just to kind of give the big picture view, is we have the sin of Ham that we're going to look at here, the curse of Canaan that's going to follow, the nations that come from Noah's son, which you uh, have heard read, and then the sin of Babel. <clears throat> but here, in, uh, starting in verses 18 through 27, uh, I want us to see the shame of sin. Uh, that's unfolded. It says that Noah's sons came out from the ark. He, he emphasizes them, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And, and there's this interesting note that's made multiple times that Ham was the father of Canaan. Here in a minute, it'll be somewhat interesting that Ham sins against his father uh, and not covering his nakedness, but it's Canaan who's the son of Ham who gets cursed. So it's kind of setting that up here because we haven't been introduced to Canaan yet. Um, but here, before any of that happens, uh, we're being told by Moses that Ham's the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah. From them, the whole earth was populated. And then it says this, Noah was a man of the soil and he began by planting a vineyard. And he drank some of the wine, and he became drank, uh, drunk, and he uncovered himself inside his tent. And it says that Ham, the father of Canaan, there's that emphasis again, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a cloak and placed it over both of their shoulders, and walking backwards, they covered their father's nakedness. And their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father naked. So verses 18 through 19 really set up what's going to follow in chapter 10, that the, the nations that are going to spread out 
through Noah's sons, uh, it's being introduced there. That's verse 19. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them the whole earth was populated. Um, and, and we see uh, that there's somewhat of, a, um, of an echo to Genesis 2 through, through 3. Uh, and, and this restarting of humanity, Noah does something similar uh, and finds himself in a similar place as Adam. Uh, we see that Noah plants a garden, a vineyard. We see that uh, he takes the fruit of the vine. And we see in doing so, uh, his nakedness is revealed. And then there is shame that follows sin, just like we saw in Adam and Eve as they were placed in the garden with work to do as they took the fruit and they sinned against God. They then realized their nakedness and were ashamed and hid from one another and hid from God. And then we see kind of an inverse. God gives blessings first in Genesis 1 and 2, and then he gives curses in Genesis 3. Here we see in the curse that follows in verses 24 through 7, a mixture of blessing of Shem and Japheth and cursing of Ham, or ultimately Canaan. And so we, we have this kind of echo uh, of what happened in Genesis 2 through chapter 3. It's a reminder that though uh, humanity has restarted, it's restarted with the same problem it had before the flood. You see, God said he would not judge the world in the same way, but he would not judge the world in the same way, not because there wasn't sin any longer, but despite their sin is what he said uh, in Genesis chapter 6. And, and here we see that, the, that Noah almost serves as a literal second Adam, if you will, um, but he does exactly what Adam did. He, he doesn't succeed where Adam failed. He fails in the same way that Adam and Eve ultimately failed. So what happened? It says that Ham saw his father's nakedness. And this is an interesting statement. And later in the scriptures, uh, there's a lot of discussion about nakedness. In fact, I'm going to talk about nakedness a lot today. I'm sure you didn't expect that one when you came to church today. But uh, nonetheless, um, we see this, this statement that Ham saw his father's nakedness. Now, many people have uh, presumed what this might be. Uh, I think the one thing that there's two things that we can say. Uh, one, we should look at what the text says, and we should also be aware of what the Bible says elsewhere. Elsewhere in the Bible, it talks about um, when someone uncovers their nakedness, that's the key word, uncovers uh, either their own or someone else's nakedness, it's often talking about sexual immorality. So if you go look at Leviticus 18, 6 through 19, uh, you'll see list after list about the sinfulness of uncovering one's own or someone else's nakedness. Uh, here, it doesn't use that terminology. So the insinuation isn't that Ham did something um, of, of sexual perversion towards his father, uh, but it literally says he saw his father's nakedness, and he went and told his brothers. It, it appears that the problem uh, that, that, that Ham has here is his callousness towards the sin of his father, who's clearly gotten drunk and has left himself naked. And rather than doing the honorable thing and covering his father's nakedness like his brothers do, instead he goes and gloats of what he saw. And, and not just gloating of what he saw, but gloating in his father's dishonor to his brothers. And so we really see the significance of what uh, Ham did by the actions of his brothers. His brothers walk backwards with a cloak on their shoulders and lay it upon their father without looking on his nakedness. Um, though he had dishonored himself through his sin, they don't further dishonor him by gloating over it. Uh, and so both in, both in, in Ham's uh, failure to cover his father's nakedness, as well as uh, the callousness and the gloating over that sin to his brothers, 
we see that, uh, that ultimately Ham bre- breaches the family ethic, if you will, uh, as well as demonstrates a callousness towards sin and its shame. And Shem and Japheth demonstrate how one should have responded to obviously a difficult uh, and unfortunate situation uh, marked by their father's own sinfulness um, that, that led to, to this point. And so uh, in response, uh, we see that there is a curse. When Noah awakes, he realizes what's happened, whether it's his sons who told him, uh, becomes aware of what happened, and he said, Canaan is cursed. He will be the lowest of slaves to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be Shem's slave and let God extend Japheth, a play on the word Japheth, which means extend, broaden his borders and let Japheth dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be Shem's slave. And then it gives this conclusion. Noah lived 350 years after the flood and Noah's life lasted 950 years and then he died. And Noah really is this transition from the um, the pre-flood to post-flood dynamic. We see the lifespan of pretty much everyone change to fall in line with God's uh, word in Genesis chapter 6 that he's going to limit the years of human beings to 120 years. <clears throat> but this raises this issue, um, and we'll come back to the curse of Cain in a minute, but it raises the issue uh, of nakedness and shame uh, throughout the Bible. Uh, this is common a common theme that runs throughout the Bible. We see it as early as Genesis 1, that Adam and Eve were naked and they were unashamed before they sinned. And then after they sinned, they are naked and ashamed. And here we see nakedness and shame again. And throughout the scriptures and the law, we see the uh, the sinfulness of uncovering one's nakedness or others. Um, and, it, and it kind of takes on a metaphorical sense of our sin in the prophets. And ultimately, in the gospel, we see that, that God takes our shame away. So I want to give us a, a theology, if you will, of nakedness. Um, a theology to understand the significance of this theme throughout the scriptures. Uh, first, we see in Genesis 1, we see that God has given nakedness within the covenant of marriage as a gift. This is a gift that he's given between husband and wife to be enjoyed. It is the, the, the most um, ultimate way of revealing oneself, of, of being vulnerable before another. And it's within the context of marriage that it's a gift is what God tells us in Genesis 1 and, and throughout the scriptures. He tells us that it is within the context of marriage that one is to enjoy this gift. And, and repeatedly in the scriptures, to uncover one's own nakedness or look upon someone else's own nakedness is a sin that's filled with shame. And it's often a sin that's filled with shame because in doing so, it's driven by self. It's self-centered at its core uh, in revealing oneself without the covenant of marriage or looking upon someone else without that covenant commitment. And it's often associated with shame. This is uh, the, uh, the, the foundational uh, teaching of why the scourge of pornography should be resisted at every point by us as believers in the church, which is so common in our culture and is common in the church if the statistics are true, that it is, a, um, <clears throat> it is particularly exploitive at its very core uh, to expose one's own nakedness or look upon another's because it goes against God's design and then in turn, it fills us with shame because we've selfishly acted and looking upon and taking uh, for ourselves something that is not our own. And it's not surprising that God uses this terminology metaphorically to talk about how sin leaves us. 
Sin leaves us in a condition that's exposed before God, spiritually naked. We, we feel shame towards others and towards God because of our sin. We, we realize that we've transgressed the boundary that God has given us, not just in, in, the, uh, in the particular sexual nature of, of sin, but in any sin. No matter its nature, you've transgressed the boundary that God has given, leaving you exposed before God and, uh, and, and ultimately guilty uh, before him, bearing and deserving his judgment. And, and our sin leads to shame. Because we've dishonored and disconnected ourselves, often both from others, but ultimately from God. Uh, This is how sin works and why shame accompanies sin. Sometimes undue shame can follow our sin. When we've been forgiven, shame can follow us and we can hear the accusations of our shame when God has forgiven us. Um, But when we sin, the sense of shame that follows sin uh, is is often um, is is not something that you should dismiss, but is something that you should sense rightly to provoke you to repentance. But here's the thing about sin and shame: we respond to sin often in our flesh in one of two ways. Often we hide from our sin because of shame, because we don't want anyone else to know the true condition that we're in. So we'll we'll hide it. And, and, and I, I'm not just speaking of sexual sin here, but this is especially true um, in that case. Uh, so we, we hide because we don't want others to know. Or, in a weird way, we celebrate it. We revel in our sin. Because when we celebrate or revel in our sin, what we do is we, we're getting others to agree with our sin so that we don't have to acknowledge the true condition that we're in. We hide because we don't want others to know. We celebrate because we want others to affirm so we don't have to face ourselves. Shame's a, shame's a beast. Shame often keeps us uh, in our sin or leads us further into our sin. Because here's the, here's the thing. All sin leads to brokenness. And ultimately what hiding and reveling in sin do, is doing is trying to get out of brokenness. It's trying to escape the brokenness that sin brings, the shame that sin brings by hiding it and hoping nobody else knows and hoping we can busy ourselves and our thoughts enough that we don't think about our sin or celebrating it so that other people will get on board with us and we'll feel better about it or surrounding ourselves with others who won't make us feel bad about our sin so we don't have to face it ourselves. We're trying to get out of our brokenness. But rather than hiding in our sin or celebrating our sin that leaves us spiritually naked, what we ultimately need is for the nakedness, the spiritual nakedness we bear to be covered. This is exactly what God knew that Adam and Eve needed when they saw their nakedness and they were ashamed. He covered them. It's exactly what Shem and Japheth knew when they saw the dishonor of their father who had become uh, drunk and had exposed himself. They covered him in his nakedness and covered his shame. And this ultimately points us to Jesus. The way out of shame is found in Christ. The, the, the reality is we can't hide from uh, hide our shame. We can't celebrate our shame. What we should do is bring it to the one who can cover it. Here's the thing. You can't hide your sin because the one who matters most already knows it. It's no good getting to celebrate your sin so that others can approve. The one who matters most doesn't approve. But the one who knows 
And the one who doesn't approve is also the same one who gave his son so that our sin, our nakedness, our shame could be covered and removed. This, is, this gets us to, to the heart of the gospel. And so Romans 10, 11 says that anyone who believes on Jesus will not be put to shame. It's in Jesus that our shame, our nakedness is covered. Our shame is removed. Our disgrace is gone. God takes what, what ultimately was for our dishonor and for our judgment and restores our honor and forgives our sin and calls us his own. This can only come about through Christ. And it's a reminder to us, as here in the story of, of Noah, no matter how broken and messed up our family is, no matter how broken and messed up our lives are, no matter how much shame and regret and sense of guilt that follows us because of our sin or the sins of others, there is a God who restores. There is a God who forgives. There is a God who renews. And it's woven throughout God's word time and time again. And if you forget it, if you forget it, Romans 5 tells us in the, in the most beautiful way that God has both spoken to our hearts subjectively and spoken through the cross objectively in this way. Listen to Romans 5. The hope that we have in Christ does not disappoint because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. We know God's love even, even if our hearts tell us that we are sinful and don't deserve His judgment. You can look at Satan and you can, you can look at yourself when those accusations come and you can say, you know what? You're right. But in Christ, my hope does not disappoint. In Christ, my shame does not define me. In Christ, my sin does not have the last word. And if you doubt it, while we were still helpless, verse 6, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person. Though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's the Holy Spirit of God that testifies to our hearts that we're forgiven, that our nakedness is covered, that our shame is removed. And, and you know what? When you go throughout your week, some days you forget that. Some days the, the accusations in your mind are louder than the, than the still whisper of the Holy Spirit. And when you doubt it, God says, look to the cross, because there it was proven objectively that not after you cleaned yourself up, not after you dealt with your shame, not after you figured out a way to make yourself presentable to others and to God, but while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I'm only on my first point, but this is the gospel. This is the gospel that God gives us that, that is here in his word that reminds us that no matter where we find ourselves, there is hope of restoration and forgiveness. That's good. We see... <clears throat> From this, the curse of Cain, Canaan that comes. And as I mentioned, uh, it's, it's interesting that it's Ham who commits the sin against his father, but it's Canaan who's cursed. Uh, and, and, and most likely the point is that it's Ham's descendants that are the recipients of this curse is the, is the point. As the genealogy shows, it's about the descendants that flow from these sons. And so just, and, and even in a fitting sense, just as... Um, uh, Ham has brought dishonor upon his family. It's ultimately Canaan who will bring dishonor upon Ham's family. Um, and, and so we have this dynamic in which Canaan is cursed. But, 
we have to remember Genesis 1 through 11, though it's presenting us these foundational truths about the beginning, it's also the introduction to the rest of Genesis. And it's really setting the stage for the conflict that will be between Abraham's offspring, Israel, and the Canaanites. Uh, and the Canaanites will, will ultimately take up residence in the land that God is going to give Israel. And ultimately, Israel, uh, through many trials and tribulations, is ultimately going to displace Canaan. Uh, and Canaan is going to become subservient uh, to Israel. And so the curse is, is probably fulfilled in the sense as you look throughout even in Genesis 14, we see how uh, some of the descendants of, uh, of Canaan become, um, are defeated by Abraham and his uh, army, so to speak. And then later on, we see in Joshua's time, as God gives Israel the promised land, which is defined as Canaan. Here, the promised land is defined uh, as it talks about Canaan and his descendants and the Canaanite clans as they spread out. Um, we see how, how they're defeated and ultimately become servants uh, to Israel. And so um, it's, it's within this context that uh, we see the, uh, the, uh, the battles, that, so to speak, both literally and uh, metaphorically, that's going to unfold between Israel and Canaan throughout the rest of the Scripture. So as you read about the Canaanites, as you read, read about the land of Canaan throughout Genesis and Exodus and into Deuteronomy, this is the foundation of that. Uh, and it's a reminder to Israel who had been reading this after Moses has brought them out of Egypt that our God is sovereign over the nations. Our God who has promised to give us the land, we know that he will and we know that, that God hates sin and he blesses those who walk with him. We see this foundationally laid in these chapters. And, and so Genesis 9 and the curse of Canaan ultimately lay this foundation for Israel. Now, a lot of times I don't talk about the history of interpretation of a passage, uh, but here in this particular passage, I think it's worth doing because here in the context of Genesis, we see in a moment, we'll see the diversity of nations that God has given us, that God has, has brought about. Um, and in particular, uh, we see how, how God has given us a common origin and then brought about this beautiful array of nations and peoples that have spread throughout the earth. That was God's plan. But this passage uh, throughout history, both outside the church and in the church, has a particular, uh, I think, evil history. Particularly the, what's known as the curse of Ham, which is a misnomer, obviously, as is the curse of Canaan, was used and twisted within world history and church history to, uh, to, to advocate for race-based slavery. The first examples of this were um, perhaps amongst Muslims in the 10th century, approving of race-based slavery. Later on, it was used by the Spanish and Portuguese to approve their slave trading in the 13th and 14th century, but became most explicit and perhaps some of the most ardent advocates of the teaching called the curse of Ham were amongst American churches in the 18th and 19th century as it became clear that race-based slavery would be what would be foundational to the uh, establishing of America, that many began to look at this curse that cursed the descendants of Ham, who ultimately, some of them would go down into North Africa and would be uh, foundational in establishing the First Nations peoples in Africa. But also, uh, the misnomer is the fact that the curse is really about Canaan, who was Middle Eastern more than anything, um, and, and settled in the land of Israel and surrounding it. Um, but they ultimately saw this as a convenient way 
uh, to, to kind of justify the slave trade. And then later on, even still throughout the American church history was used to then advocate for Jim Crow laws and even resist uh, desegregation in the, in the 50s and 60s. I, I, I've read quotes from pastors of churches uh, back in the 50s and 60s from the churches that represent this, uh, the denomination that we're a part of, as well as pretty much every other mainline denomination. And to our shame and to our fault, historically, this has been used to justify racism. That because the descendants of Ham are African, therefore they are inherently inferior. It's a misreading of the text, but it's a reminder of how we can twist the scriptures to support our own evil and sinful desires and attitudes. And I mention it here because it's within the context of God telling us that he is sovereign over the nations. All these nations that I probably butchered the pronunciation of, God knows them all. And he committed from the beginning to redeem them all. And so with, with broken hearts, we ought to be people who, who, who reflect and can be honest about our history as well as mindful of the God that we serve and the God that redeems what's broken and sinful in the past and commit ourselves to pursuing his vision and his plan for a diversity of nations, a diversity of people who will worship him. And whatever we've done to get in the way in the past, that we would, we would commit ourselves to do the exact opposite in the future. Well, we can't run from our past. Because of the gospel, we can be honest about it. And because of the gospel, we have hope for change. And that's what I'm committed to. And that's what I pray we're committed to as a church. So we see from, from the curse of, of Canaan, uh, the, the kind of beginning of uh, this conflict between the, the, what would become the descendants of Shem and the descendants of Canaan, but, but it's ultimately going to play out in the spreading out of these people and the nations. We read Genesis 10, but in Genesis 10, we see the diversity of the nations. Genesis 10 is known as the table of the nations. It's perhaps the earliest and most significant ethnographical record that we have of the peoples of the earth. It, it gives us the record of the peoples of the earth at the time of Noah, uh, and really up to the time of, of Noah, uh, at the time of Moses, as people began to spread out and establish themselves throughout the earth. Uh, we see uh, Genesis nine nineteen tells us that it's from these sons that the whole earth was populated. Genesis 10 is reiterating that. But while it's a genealogy, it's not any genealogy. If you, if you just look at Genesis 5, you'll notice that the rhythm of Genesis 5 is so-and-so fathered, so-and-so fathered, so-and-so, and they died, and so-and-so fathered, so-and-so, and they died, and such-and-such, and such-and-such, yeah, on and on. You get the idea. Well, it's different in Genesis 10 because it's like such-and-such fathered a people. The Jebusites, uh, the Girgashites, the Amorites, like it's talking not so much just about a family genealogy in a, in a uh, vertical manner, so to speak, but, all, but ultimately a horizontal how, uh, how the, uh, from these people nations were established um, and not in the sense of nation states uh, like we know them today. There's about 200 nation states today. But there are literally thousands of people groups that make up those nation states and crisscross those nation states. And there are people groups that, um, that are in different places defined by the language they speak, the culture that they have, um, and often the location in which they, they live. This is talking about that, people groups, but using the word 
nations. And so we're obviously, though we can look at some of these and we can see like, for example, Ashkenaz is known as uh, the area of Germany uh, and people who are from there, for example, when the Jews were spread out, the Ashkenazi Jews are known as German Jews uh, that are from, uh, that had been located there. We see other places like Cush and Put that were known as, as referencing Ethiopia and Egypt and different parts of, of North Africa. And, and uh, later on, it goes down and it talks about um, Sheba, which is known in the, um, and Jovan, which is known in the Arabian Peninsula, and uh, Joktan amongst the people of Jephthah was known as um, kind of in Greece, and, and the other area, I think we have a, a map that lays this out, um, you can kind of see the green represents where uh, the descendants of Ham spread out to, you can see it within North Africa, here's Canaan, um, which is the point of contention that I was talking about earlier. Uh, the people of Shem, as known as the, um, the, the Semite people, spread throughout the Arabian Peninsula. Um, and then uh, the people of Jephthah, or Japheth, excuse me, um, spread throughout kind of the uh, north and east. And some of what becomes Europe, some of what becomes Central Asia, like Magog is a, a place known uh, in reference to Russia. Um, and there's some end time folks probably going crazy right now about all that's going on in Russia and Magog and Revelation. Um, I'm not telling you one way or the other what to believe about that, but uh, it does reference that. But it also takes on a little bit of a, a symbolic language, just as Babylon here in a minute when we talk about Babel is going to take on a symbolic language in Revelation. Um, and, uh, and so but this is reference of Iraq and Iran. Um, you can kind of see uh, what was known of the peoples of the earth at this time. And then this is how they spread to this point. And I believe ultimately it's from these people, both perhaps in crossing and marrying within these people, that we have the nations spread throughout. We, we have the, the islands, the Pacific Islands that come this way. And obviously the Americas, South America, North America, people um, spreading out and the earth being filled with people just as God had intended. And so we see Genesis 10 has this emphasis in verse 5 and verse 20 and verse 31 that it's talking about how these three sons, their descendants spread out according to their clans, according to their languages and their lands and their nations. That's the emphasis of the table of nations. Uh, but what it shows us um, is also that the end, uh, the ending of the genealogy focuses on Shem. And then in Genesis 11, verse 10, the descendants from Shem are going to be picked up again. The emphasis is that it's ultimately going to be through the line of Shem that God is going to continue on his work of redemption that's going to lead us to Abraham through whom God is going to, to establish the people of Israel and bring blessing to all nations. But here, here's what I want us to see in the diversity of these nations. I want us to see two points. We see diversity grounded in unity. Diversity grounded in unity. Historically, this is true according to 10.1 and 10.32, that all the nations of the earth came from Noah's three sons after the flood. So like it or not, we're all in the same family. Right? That's what, that's what Genesis 10 tells you. Like it or not, we're all in the same family. We all have the same origin. Historically, this is true according to Genesis 10, 1 and verse 32. This is our unity, historically speaking. 
but theologically speaking, which is also grounded in history as well, is it takes us back to Genesis 1, 26 through 28, in that all the nations of the earth share the same origin in that we're made in the image of God. Historically, it's true after the flood. Theologically, it's true that we're made in the image of God. And as I mentioned this earlier, anytime we lose this truth, that human diversity is grounded in our historical and theological unity, no matter what ethnicity you are, no matter what background you are, this is what leads to racism, ethnocentrism, and xenophobia. This is what happens when we forget this reality. And it's also a reason why we should hold fast to to the faith that we hold because not only do we live in a world defined by a kind of a secular humanism that says we should treat everyone equal, it does so without any basis for claiming it, right? If, if, if secular humanism is true and that we've all ultimately evolved and it's the survival of the fittest that has, that has led us to where we are, then not everyone is equal. There is no basis for equality. Because if I'm bigger and better... Who's to say that I shouldn't knock you down so I can go up? But according to this historical reality, this theological truth, we're all made in the image of God. We all share this. We're all in the same family. Therefore, we can't see ourselves as better than anyone. No matter where they're from, no matter how they look, not even what language they speak. This is foundational to understanding God's vision for the diversity of nations that he's given us according to his design. And that's the, the second point, is that diversity uh, is according to God's design. Genesis 1.28, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Genesis 9.1, after the flood, it's reiterated, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Here in a minute, we're going to look at Genesis 11, which which ultimately is out of chronological order. Genesis 11 happens within the the table of nations in Genesis 10, but I think it's given to us first in Genesis 10 before Genesis 11 to show us that the filling of the earth and the scattering of people, the diversity of nations that, that develop is according to God's design, not his judgment. So we see that this diversity that God has brought about is his design. Acts 17, verses 26 through 27, as Paul preaches the gospel in Athens, he said that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps fill their way toward him and find him. And yet he is actually not far from each one of us. God has determined the allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling paces. And from one man, every nation of mankind has been made to live on the face of the earth. This is God's design. He is sovereign over the nations, uh, both in our uh, diversity that's grounded in our historical and theological unity, as well as according to his design, the, the spreading out and the diversity of the nations that results. But here's what's interesting about Genesis 11. While the diversity of nations is according to God's design, the means by which God achieved it, Genesis 11, 1 through 9 tells us, came about through God's judgment, particularly the confusion of languages, which takes us to the Tower of Babel. Look at Genesis 11, verse 1 with me. As I've said, Genesis 11 takes us, um, is out of chronological order. It's not that it follows uh, at the very end of what Genesis 10 says. In fact, most likely, Genesis 11 takes place around verse 8, through 12, when it talks about Nimrod, who is a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord and who 
started his kingdom in Babylon in the land of Shinar. Uh, most likely it's referring to that as, as well as perhaps some overlap with verse 25 when Peleg uh, is mentioned and it says, During his days the earth was divided. Uh, it's most likely talking about what took place at the Tower of Babel. Uh, as you can imagine, it probably was a big event. Uh, even though it's perhaps closer to the flood, the ending of the flood, it has significant impact upon uh, how people related to one another. And it says this, The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. And the people migrated from the east, and they found the valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, Come, let us make oven-fired bricks. They had a new technology. Uh, they got a new smartphone. Like They, they had uh, a 3D printer, and they were like, Look what we can do. We can make bricks that don't get you know, washed away when it rains. Like Let's use this technology. Um, and, and they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth. They, they resisted God's plan to be fruitful and to fill the earth. And they said, let's gather together, make a name for ourselves so we won't be scattered. And then the Lord came down and looked over the city and the tower that the humans were building. And the Lord said, if they have begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse the language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it's called Babylon. For there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. <clears throat> so two things that they wanted. They wanted to make a name for themselves, and they wanted to, to not be scattered. Here, here's the delusion of pride, uh, if you will, uh, that we see in this passage. Um, we saw the, sin, the shame of sin earlier. Here we see the delusion of pride because they think to themselves, we can resist God's will, and we can make ourselves great. I heard John Piper describe the desires of the people here at Babel. At Babel was they, they desired, uh, they had the love of praise and the love of security. They wanted a name for themselves and they didn't want to have to risk being spread out. They said, let's stay together so we don't have to spread out. It was ultimately, uh, when you think about pride, Pride at its core is life defined by self. That's the focus of pride. Me, myself, and I, and Jim Carrey. Um, <laughs> it's life defined by self. Let's make a name for ourselves. We know what God said, but it would be better not to do that. That's risky. Let's stay here together. And in fact, throughout the Bible, one commentator says that Babylon will become the symbol for godless society with all of its pretensions according to here in Genesis 11, its persecutions of those of faith in Daniel 3, its pleasures, its sin according to Isaiah 47, and then its ultimate, its riches, its decadence, but its ultimate doom according to Revelation 17 and 18. It's, it's a picture of society apart from God. And the delusion of pride is seen in the fact that God has to come down and look at their city that they were trying to, their tower that they were trying to build that would go up to the sky. I, I love the irony and the sarcasm that can be found sometimes in God's word. Here they are building their city to the sky to reach God. And God says, I must go down so that I can see the city that they're trying to build up to me. It's a delusion to think that we can elevate ourselves above God. 
that we can operate in a, in a way that resists his will. But the people of Babel were attempting to do just that. And it reminds us that God's sovereign plan cannot be thwarted. He will either work in spite of our sin or even through our, our sin, as well as in our obedience to accomplish his will. <clears throat> and what they refused to do to spread throughout the earth God ultimately brought about according to his own time and his own plan. Through confusing their language, he does two things. He restrains their sin because he says if they, if they could speak the same language, nothing would stop them from all kinds of evil. So he restrains sin by confusing language, but also acts in judgment upon them in their pride and confusing their language to bring about what was his will to be spread throughout the earth. The diversity of the nations as they spread abroad, uh, though it was according to God's plan, the confusion of language was a result of God's judgment. And the confusion of language that is a result of God's judgment is also the very thing that God in the fullness of his plan of redemption then uses to bring about the praise of his glory. Because while God confused their languages to spread them out, to restrain sin, and to judge their pride. Trevin Wax has this quote talking about Babel. He says, at the end of time, God isn't going to obliterate all languages. At the end of time, he now sees the diversity of languages as a part of the beauty of his creation. Every tribe, tongue, and nation will praise God. The different languages won't go away. They'll all be in service to praising King Jesus. How do we know this? Because God chooses Abraham to bring a, be a blessing to all nations in Genesis 12. We know it according to the Great Commission. Uh, I don't have time to talk about Isaiah. If we could just unpack Isaiah. Isaiah says in Isaiah 21 or Isaiah 19, 21 through 28, it says that God is going to bring Assyria and Egypt and bring them together with Israel. And they're all going to be called his people. How's that for a plan for God restoring what was broken by sin? According to Noah's family, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, all represented by Assyria, Egypt, and Israel, God says, I'm going to bring them together, and they're all going to be mine. And then Jesus says in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, go and make disciples of just your nation and the people who look like you. No, he didn't say that. He said, go and make disciples of all nations. And at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes, the Spirit of God comes, and as all the people were gathered together and they began to hear Peter speak, everyone heard Peter speaking in his own language according to their own language. God brought together nations like the Parthians and the Medes and the Elamites and people from Mesopotamia and Judah and Cappadocia and Pontus, Asia, Perga, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya. That's Ham's descendants. That's Japheth's descendants in, uh, in, uh, in reference to Pontus and Asia and all of the Jews that had gathered in, Israel, in, in Jerusalem for Pentecost and the proselytes and the Cretans and the Arabians, even those uh, estranged siblings uh, of, uh, of the Israelites that, that came from Ishmael, they all came together and heard telling in their own tongues the mighty works of God. And what was the mighty works of God? That according to the definite foreknowledge and plan of God, he crucified Jesus because of their sin upon a cross. And he was laid in a tomb. And on the third day, he rose. They heard the message of the gospel. And at the end of time, when God gathers people from every nation, Revelations 5, 9 through 10 says they will sing this song. They will hear uh, the angels sing this song. Worthy are you to take the scroll, speaking of Jesus, and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God 
from every tribe, from every tongue, from every language, from every people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The languages of the world, John Piper said, are the judgment of God on sin, but they were designed by God for the global glory of Jesus Christ. God is a God of the nations who plans to make his name great and his name great among the nations, according to the gospel. But if I can apply it specifically and personally, see, the reality of what Genesis 9 through 11 tells us is that our sin isn't greater than God's power and his grace to forgive. God can take our sin, which is to our shame and transform it into his praise when we come to him, when we when we surrender our brokenness and our mess to him. We confess our sin to him. He says, give me your sin, give me your shame, give me your brokenness, and I'll cover. I'll forgive. I'll transform and renew and redeem. That's the God we serve. And the message that we bear for our community and for all nations is that there's a God who covers our shame, who confronts us in our pride, and gives us what we don't deserve and what we can't earn. He gives us forgiveness. He gives us new life in him. That's our message. Let's pray.